Have you ever heard of Lord of the Rings? I hope most of you have, because it's just an epic fantasy novel. It's really, really awesome. You, if you haven't picked up the books, at least, hopefully, uh, you've seen the movies. The central plot of Lord of the Rings is that there's a ring of power. And what the ring of power does is it corrupts anybody who tries to use it, however good his or her intentions may be. The ring is what Professor Tom Shippey calls a psychic amplifier, which takes the heart's fondest desires and magnifies them to idolatrous proportions. Some good characters in the book want to liberate slaves or um, preserve people's lands or visit wrongdoers with just punishment. These are all good objectives. But the ring makes them willing to do anything to achieve those objectives. Anything at all. Turns a good thing into an absolute thing. That overturns every other allegiance or value. The wearer of the ring becomes increasingly enslaved and addicted to it. For an idol is something that we cannot live without. We must have it. And therefore, it drives us to break rules that we once honored, to harm others, and even ourselves in order to get it. Idols are spiritual addictions that lead to terrible evil in Tolkien's novel and in real life. This morning, we're going to see Gideon be seduced by the power, not of a ring, but of success. We're going to see him begin longing for something aside from the glory of God. His own glory. And he'll be willing to do anything to achieve his objective. He'll slowly forget that God had called him out of humble circumstances, out of a wine press. His disintegration will be slow. And idolatry will work its way through his whole heart, his whole mind, and his whole body like a poison. Subtle. Deadly. He's going to forget the answer to the question that we asked last week. If you remember, we asked, who deserves the glory? And chapter 7 answered profoundly. Profoundly? Profoundly works. It answered loudly. Only God deserves the glory. And the salvation was from the Lord. Gideon is going to forget the answer to both of these questions this week. As we turn to Judges chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 1 through 31. If you're using a pew Bible there, uh, I believe you can find it on page 170 or thereabouts. And if you're new to the Bible and you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. And you'll also notice large numbers and small numbers. The large numbers are going to be the chapter numbers and the small numbers will be the verse numbers. So you can follow along with us there. Uh, Today, I've split our text into two sections. The first section is going to be verses 1 through 21, and we're going to see there a new agenda. A new agenda. And then in verses 22 through 31, we'll we'll come across a king that doesn't wear a crown. We'll see a king without a crown. A new agenda and a king without a crown. This morning, I hope to exhort you to beware of success. Beware of success. And I also aim to encourage you to exalt Christ, to give Jesus the glory, because he alone is worthy. 
of all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. Before we get into chapter 8, let's, let's pray together. Father, we need your grace and your mercy during this time to give us ears to hear and minds to understand. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would help break away the stone that encases them, that you would make us to be finally alive, that we might understand your word, that it might bring us to the ends of ourselves, that it might cause us to repent of idols and to turn away from uh, all these things that we've built our life on and turn towards you, that we would build our lives on Christ, the solid rock. God, help us to love you with our whole hearts, our whole lives. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So if you look with me at verse 1 of chapter 8, and as we read, uh, you're going to have to forgive me on some of the names. They're going to be a little bit difficult this week throughout, so you'll just have to suffer through it. Uh, So starting with verse 1 of chapter 8, Then the men of Ephraim said to Gideon, What is this that you have done to us? Not to call us when you went out to fight against Midian. And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of grapes in Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Ebiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Their anger against Gideon subsided. When he said this, this first section serves as kind of a postscript or if you were writing a letter, the PS section uh, on the last section that we did on chapter seven. If you remember, Gideon surrounded the enemy and then drove them out. Well, he didn't really drive them out. God drove them out as the men of verse 21 stood in place with nothing in their hands but mere torches, not even swords. And the enemy was thwarted. And then. Ephraim's uh, message was sent to this tribe, Ephraim, as the men were fleeing, that they were fleeing, in fact, and they captured the princes of Midian, Zeb and Oreb. And they killed Oreb and Zeb at a wine press and at a rock to kind of bring everything full circle, because that's where our narrative began when Gideon was first called. Now, here, these men of Ephraim are kind of angry, and they're saying to Gideon, Why didn't you call us when you went out to fight? If you remember, Uh, Gideon had 32,000 men, and God shrunk that army down to about 300 men. And Ephraim was a very strong tribe. You see, now that Midian has been thrown off, the oppression has been thrown off, they are kind of saying to Gideon, we wanted a piece of that glory. But Gideon here is very tactful. He calms their anger by rhetorically asking, what have I been able to do in comparison with you? After all, you are the ones that killed the princes of Midian. You are the ones that are deserving of the glory, of of victory. What have I been able to do? I haven't done anything yet. This placates the men of Ephraim for now. It calms their aggression. But it also kind of points us forward to where we're going in chapter 8. Something that we're going to see press in on Gideon's heart. A question that's going to be at the forefront of his mind. What have I? been able to do. You can see the idol begin to seduce him. He's going to become hungry for glory, hungry for honor and admiration. 
Look with me at verse 4. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Sukkoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Ziba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sukkoth said to him, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand? that we should give bread to your army? Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with thorns from the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkoth had. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Gideon's seeking help from his fellow Israelites, but he will not find it. He's looking for bread from Penuel and Sukkoth and is turned away. Do you see Gideon's anger? He gets very, very angry, and this is a sign of uh, his desire for respect. Don't they know who he is? Wouldn't they give him bread and provision? Instead of saying to them, brothers, look, I know I only have 300 men, but it's the Lord that strengthens us. It's the Lord that has given the victory. Instead of being patient with them as God was patient with him when his laying out of the fleece and his need to see the dream. Remember the the bread rolled into the camp of the Midianites and it knocked over their tent. All his need for reassurance, God was patient with Gideon. Instead of being patient with his fellow Israelites, he becomes angry. Because he thinks they should know who he is. And they should respect him. And honor him. It must have sounded very much to him. What have you done? Have you defeated these kings yet? No. We won't give you provisions. Because with only 300 men, it's likely you're going to lose. And if they found out we helped you, they're going to be mad. Gideon must have thought, how ungrateful. You can feel his anger rise as he feels disrespected. And he says essentially to them, you will see, you'll all see, I'll show you. And when I come back in victory, I'll whip you with thorns and with briars. And I'll tear down this tower. I'll teach you who I am after I capture the enemy. He says all this despite the fact that God has been so patient with him, so loving with him. I can't help but see myself in Gideon a little bit here. And maybe you can see yourself there too. God has been infinitely patient with each of us, hasn't he? Kindly leading us to repentance. Kindly leading us to walk more like him each day. Helping us to become and practice what he's declared us to be in truth. Righteous as Jesus Christ is righteous. Do we show this same patience to others? How are you in being patient with your husband, with your wife, with your children, with your parents, with your aging parents, with your grandparents? Are you giving others the benefit of the doubt? Are you being kind to them? Or are you quick to anger? Gideon here is quick to anger. And he says, I'll show you. 
we continue to follow uh, his journey in verse 10. Now, Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkar with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east. For there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nova and Jogbaha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them. And he captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna. And he threw the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Haresh. And he captured a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and the elders of Sukkoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give you bread? To you and your men who were exhausted. And Gideon took the elders of the city. And he took the thorns of the wilderness and the briars. And with them taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel. And he killed men of the city. In the first portion of these verses we see Gideon mount another surprise attack against the enemy. Only if you, if you recognize it this time. I think it's verse 12. It is. Gideon is the one throwing the army into confusion. Let's compare that with chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. If you, if you just flip the page over and look. It says, Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled. The Lord is throwing the army into confusion in chapter 7. But in chapter 8, it is Gideon that's throwing the army into confusion. The author is doing something very purposefully here. He's pointing us to the very loud silence of the Lord. It's deafening. God is absent from what Gideon is doing right now. It helps to show us that Gideon has stopped following God's agenda, and that he's come up with a new agenda, his own agenda. He's become somewhat successful, and he's hungry for admiration, for the honor and for the glory that he deserves. If someone were to to look at your life, whose agenda would they conclude you are following? Have you ever done this? Have you ever followed your own agenda and tried to pass it off as the Lord's? Maybe, uh, you know, when you really want to do something and somebody's standing in your way and you go, the Lord's really leading me to blank. When in fact, the Lord hasn't led you there at all. You're just kind of pulling that God card so that no one can stand in your way. Whose agenda are you following? And whose glory are you concerned with? Gideon makes it his agenda to teach the men of Sukkoth and Penuel a lesson. He beats the people of Sukkoth and tears down the tower of Penuel. And then goes beyond his threat and slaughters the men of the city in Penuel. Gideon's behavior could maybe be justified if this were a people of a Canaanite city, of an enemy. But these are fellow Israelites. Gideon's character has been transformed again. He is a general out of control. He's no longer bound, or he feels that he's no longer bound, by the rules of civility. 
let alone national loyalty. Gideon seems to be asking, what have I, Gideon, done that you should give me bread? Defeated the enemy. Do not forget who I am. I will teach you a lesson. As one commentator points out, in contrast to God's remarkable patience and grace with his people, Gideon turns out to be an impatient and ruthless ruler. And Gideon is not done. Verse 8, 18. Then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? And they answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And Gideon said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. And Gideon turned to his son Jether, his firstborn, and said, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziva and Zalmunna taunted, saying, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose, and he killed Ziba and Zalmunna. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. We learn here that the Midianite kings were not only oppressors, but they were murderous oppressors. That they had killed Gideon's brothers. This helps reveal a little bit of the slip in Gideon's heart, away from God's agenda and towards his own agenda, which is vengeance. There's also great irony. We just left Gideon killing the men of Penuel, Israelites. And now he's angry at Ziba and Zalmunna for killing Israelites. His brother, he's the pot calling the kettle black. And then he turns to his firstborn and he says, kill these guys. But his firstborn doesn't do it because he's afraid. Now, Keel and Delich point out to us the reason that he asks his firstborn to kill uh, these kings is because dying at the hand of a young boy would have been embarrassing and tremendously humiliating for these kings. And he wanted to um, just diminish any honor that they might have. But his, his, his son is unable to do this because of fear. And so Gideon finishes the matter himself, killing the men and plundering them. We see a stark contrast here between the holy war of God, the war that's forged at God's command for the protection of a whole nation, and Gideon's pursuit of personal vengeance. Gideon can now answer the question, what have I done? Well, I've killed kings and overthrown armies, and I've taught lesser men to respect me. At the end of these verses, Gideon has blood on his hands and success on his heart. See, John Calvin's words ring true. The human heart is an idol factory. It takes all types of things, even really good things, especially good things, and sets itself on them instead of God. Gideon has taken the success that he has had and turned it into an idol, something he values more than God. An idol is anything, even a good thing, that's more fundamental to your happiness than God. Gideon's success makes him feel that he is the best at what he does. 
Meaning there's no one else like him. Making him supreme. Do you have the desire to be supreme? His anger when the people won't give him bread shows us that he feels that he ought to receive admiration and honor for Israel's deliverance. He's forgotten the lesson of the 300 and sought glory. If you remember, God whittles the army down to 300 so that Israel won't say, chapter 7, verse 2, my own hand has saved me. Yet somehow they've found a way. Keller points out for us, Gideon's need for respect and honor and his violent, bitter rage when he fails to be given what he thinks he deserves shows that his success in battle has been the worst thing for him. He's become addicted to and dependent upon his success. There is a terrible spiritual danger involved in the receiving of any blessing. There's a terrible spiritual danger involved in the receiving of any blessing. Success can easily cause us to forget God's grace because our hearts are desperate to believe that we can save ourselves. Our hearts are desperate to believe that we can save ourselves. God-given victory can easily be used to confirm the belief that, in fact, we have earned blessing for ourselves and should receive the praise and glory for that success. Gideon started out well. But then he got caught up in the success and in the power that came with his call from God. He was well-intentioned, but he forgot hiding in the wine press. He forgot his low state. He forgot that everything he had was a gift from God. He forgot the lesson that we have to relearn every day of our lives, that salvation is from the Lord. Do you happen to struggle with success? Have you been blinded by God's blessing in your life and begun to take credit for it? Are you more concerned about your reputation or God's? Do you think you are valuable because of what you've done or what he has done? We need to remember that we are saved by grace when we fail, yes, but much more when we succeed. We need to remember that we are saved by grace when we fail, but we need to remember it much more when we succeed. Friends, beware of success. Remember your roots. Remember the gospel. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. It is by grace that you have been saved, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do not forget God's grace. Do not presume upon God's grace. Don't forget the gospel. Verse 22, we'll see a king without a crown. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Israel wants Gideon to be their king. They've misunderstood the true agent of their deliverance. They credit Gideon with saving them. And notice while Gideon says the right thing, he seems pretty good here, right? I won't rule over you. God will rule over you. He says the right thing, but 
his actions will be wrong. We'll get to that in a second. He has the right words and the wrong action. We'll get there in, in just a second. But notice Israel says, you have saved us, Gideon. Therefore, you should rule over us. And Gideon doesn't correct their misunderstanding. He doesn't say, no, I have not saved you. The Lord God has saved you. He is the one that has delivered you. He doesn't correct them. He simply gives his Sunday school answer while his heart is wicked within him. Likewise, you and I can know right answers to questions about Christ and not know Christ. You can say the right thing and your heart can be very, very far from God. Sure, you know the answers, but do you know Jesus? Where is your heart this morning? Where is your heart? What is it set on? Gideon's was set on success, and he was greedy for more glory. Verse 24, And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you, every one of you. Give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw, it, threw in his earrings from the spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian. And beside the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod. And he put it in his city of Orpha. And all of Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel. And they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jerubal, that is Gideon, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons and his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. And he called his name Abimelech. Gideon's greed for glory did not begin that way. No, he had good intentions, as we saw in chapter 7. But as we have seen in chapter 8, his heart has been unchecked. And his idolatry has slowly drawn him away from the Father and into his own self. It reminds me of Lord of the Rings. Gideon's heart, like the ring, has turned a good thing, success, into an absolute thing. His intentions have spiraled out of control and has become a slave to his desire for success and acclaim. He's become greedy for glory. He asks the men for a portion of the spoil. And Block comments, this action is doubly significant. On the one hand, by requesting gifts from each of his men, Gideon demanded a symbolic gesture of submission to himself. Gladly surrendering their share of the loot, the people of Israel confirmed their status as Gideon's vassals. On the other hand, the amount of gold that Gideon received takes on the character of a royal treasure. Right words, wrong action. Gideon is assuming the role, the role of a king. Even though he never wears a crown, he creates an ephod. Now what is an ephod exactly? It's a piece of clothing that's worn by the high priest in the tabernacle. In the tent where God's presence was among his people. Which at this point is sited in Shiloh. On it were two stones. One, and they were used to receive a yes or no answer from the Lord. 
So maybe you want to think of it like coins, right? With a, a heads and a tails. And so the people would go out, they'd ask a question of the Lord, and they'd flip these two stones. And two upsides meant yes, two downsides meant no. And one of each meant, ask again later, I don't know. I, I mean, it, it just don't know, no answer. The ephod, it designated the true place of God's dwelling. And it was used to discern God's will at a time of crisis. And according to the law, according to the Mosaic law, there was to only be one ephod. Yet Gideon makes his own. Now it's unclear how uh, Gideon's ephod was used. We're told, though, that all of Israel whored after it and that it became a snare to Gideon and his family. And as a piece of clothing, uh, many have speculated how he used it. The truth is, we don't really know how this looks. We don't know if it looks like an apron or a cloak or like like a t-shirt, big t-shirt that the priest used to put on. We don't know what it looks like from Scripture. We do know that it was worn, and so many they have many different suggestions. Uh, And so I just picked two of how commentators suggested that it might be have been used. Uh, One is that the people uh, put it on an idol, and so if you remember way back when Gideon tore down those idols to Baal. The idea here is that they suggest that he has gone back and he rebuilds those idols that he tore down and he throws this ephod over top of them as a cloak or a garment. And the people uh, whore after, they go after those idols. The second suggestion is that Gideon wore the ephod around himself and everybody longed after it, longed after his position of power. I'm not sure which it is, but the text makes it clear that even after the Midianites had been defeated, Israel's idolatry has not been defeated. And for the first time, idolatry is officially sponsored by a leader of the nation. The judge is supposed to turn the people from unfaithfulness to the true God. Gideon is leading them into unfaithfulness. The land has rest, but the people's hearts are going restlessly after their idols. Gideon denied the kingship, but his actions have him assuming the role of king as he leads his subjects into idolatry. By asking for plunder and setting up his hometown as the capital via the ephod, by taking many, many wives as the surrounding kings would have, and concubines as the surrounding kings would have, all of this against the Mosaic law for a king, by the way, he sets himself up as a king. He even names his son in verse 31, Abimelech, which... I mean, do you know what Abimelech means? It's my father is king, is the meaning of that name. So in one verse, we have him saying, I won't be your king. And then he does all these things to set himself up as a king. And then he names his son, my father is king. Right words, wrong heart, wrong action. How often, though, are we just like Gideon? We say that God is king and Lord of our lives, but we are greedy for the treasures that the world has to offer. No one ever thinks they're greedy. Jesus warns against it quite often, in fact. We give lip service to Jesus, but we want people to see us as special, to come to us for answers, for guidance, for salvation. We need to be needed. We want others to respect us, to see us as successful. And so we make an ephod. And we wear it ourselves. How subtle. How deadly. Remember the question of chapter 7. Who deserves the glory? And we answered God. And then we look here in chapter 8. And we notice who is given the glory. Gideon. 
think we can relate to getting as we try to get glory that is not ours. We often go out after admiration and honor. Try to find our identity in things other than Christ. Gideon lusts after success. He wants to be served, even though he has no claim to the throne. Even though he is no king, he longs to be served. He demands it, in fact. He teaches those that won't serve him a lesson. Jesus, who is the king, denies his rights and gives up admiration and honor and glory to take on flesh, to step into human history and deal with the problem of sin. He resists the temptation of Satan to rule and power over the nations. And he comes not to be served, but to serve. And he gives his life as a ransom for you. We will not find rest in idols, nor in career, nor money, nor homes, nor family, nor anything else. You will only find true rest, true peace in Jesus Christ. Indeed, we are broken people in need of a faithful God. I urge you this morning, beware of success, beware of the treasures of this world, beware of your idols. And consider this. Consider if you love Jesus more. Is he your treasure? Is Jesus what is most fundamental to your happiness? If not, I urge you, to repent. Building the meaning on your life, of your life, on anything, even a good thing, other than Jesus, is idolatry. And it will lead to destruction. Don't just say the right words and do the right things. Follow Christ with everything. Your whole mind and your whole heart. Build the meaning of your life on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness.